Hey everyone, welcome to The Lab. This is 538's NBA podcast for the week of January 31st, 2017. My name is Neil Payne. I write about sports for 538. I will be your host today, and I'm joined as always by my co-podcasters. On the line from Chicago, we have 538 sports writer Chris Herring, no longer trapped inside of an airport. And of course, our fellow 538 sports writer Kyle Wagner is here in studio. Hey guys. Hey man. What's going on, man? How are you? Uh, doing good. How uh, you escaped the travel hell of last week, it sounds like, Chris. Yeah, I was planning to make another trip this week. The Blake Griffin trade happened. Figure I should just stay put and write about that. Uh, so, so and made sure that I wouldn't be in an airport this time because of it. Yeah, like like you uh, alluded to, there was that piece of news. There was a lot of news this week. In fact, uh, in, uh, I think the most packed into a single week uh, in in the history of our podcast, at least. So much that we're going to adjust the structure of this week's show a little bit because of it. Uh, Our small sample size is going to go away, but we're going to try to cover as much of the news as we can, from DeMarcus Cousins' season-ending injury to Kevin Love's absence from the Cavaliers, the Wizards shutting down John Wall for a long period of time, and what losing Andre Robertson does to the Thunder's chances. But first, let's talk about this week's biggest and maybe only non-injury-related story, which was Blake Griffin on the move. On Monday night, ESPN reported that the LA Clippers had traded Blake Griffin, their biggest star, their erstwhile franchise player, to the Detroit Pistons for Tobias Harris, other veterans, and some draft picks. Now, it remains to be seen if this is the start of a complete fire sale for the Clips, which would also presumably see pending free agents DeAndre Jordan and Lou Williams shipped away as well, or if it's just LA pouncing on a chance to snag a potentially valuable pick. But either way, it's another signal that the best era in Clippers history is officially over, a process that had already started last June when Chris Paul was sent to the Houston Rockets. But before we talk about the Pistons angle in this trade, let's dwell a little bit on the Clippers' big three era with Griffin, Paul, and DeAndre Jordan. What what do we make of that time in L.A.? Is it is it ultimately a disappointment given that they didn't cash in more on the promise that they had in terms of postseason wins? Or is it a success in the context of a franchise that really was relevant for the first time since the 70s, if not ever? Uh, I think you have to go back to the Buffalo Braves to find a time in which that team uh, was anywhere near as good as they have been in that CP3, Blake, DeAndre era. So I think it really depends on what you think of Chris Paul. So this is a thing that uh, that you've written about, Neil, that like we've talked about a lot of like Chris Paul by the metrics that we use to define like, you know, the advanced metrics, whether it's wind shares, whether it's PER, like whatever you use. Pretty much all of them. Yeah. True shooting usage, like all the indexes, all the, like any way you want to compare one to another and just like get, you know, make something more out of it. Chris Paul is a Michael Jordan level player. Like he is as good as NBA players get by the stats that we have. Uh and typically, because there are only five players on the court at one time, because a one good player can kind of inflect the way that the game goes much more so than in other team sports, if you have a player of that caliber, you tend to get to conference finals, at least. You get tend to go to the finals, win championships. Uh, and that didn't happen. That never happened in a way that, like, yes, the Western Conference has been loaded for the entire time Chris Paul has been in the league. Yes, he, he's had lots of bad luck on the teams that, on which he's played, and there have been injuries. There have been just unaccountable hot streaks by the other team. In the Rocket Series, there have been all kinds of just misfortune. But at a certain point, you have to just wonder, well, can there be all this much bad luck for one player? Like, maybe, 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 but for almost every other player that, like, kind of grades out the way that he does by the advanced metrics— uh, like that's just that hasn't been enough to keep him out of the the third round forever, and so you have to wonder, uh, maybe is there something kind of a hole in the metrics that we're using that 
doesn't quite account for like the effect that Chris Paul would have on a team, let alone like Blake Griffin and DeAndre. I think it depends on whether or not you're looking at it strictly through the eyes of a Clipper fan, which, I mean, this is something that you should be so excited that you had a chance to watch if you're a Clippers fan. They were at least extremely fun. Uh, they had some heartbreaking series losses. And really what I think killed them in the end was the fact that the Warriors came along and you know made life difficult for them. The, the fact that the Warriors came along – the Warriors actually got Steve Kerr and Draymond Green became a big part of their plan. Um, I think they, the Clippers, which way did it go that one time? They played in the playoff series, but really I think the the Clippers would have been really well equipped to make it farther in one of the, at least one of these situations had it not been for the Warriors. Um, they had probably as good an offense as you could really have outside of what the Warriors did. Um, they had th- these guys in their primes for the most part. You remember they went out and they basically traded to get Doc Rivers as a coach. Uh, they overcame the, the whole thing with the owner, which was such a big mess. And so when you look at this, they they played way better than anything we'd ever seen from the Clippers before. But just based on that team they had, I think when I wrote a story about this, you ran the numbers on it. They had something like a, what was it, a 77% chance, the fact that they put together six straight 50-win seasons and never made a conference final the odds of that happening are so low. Basically, the odds of getting to at least one conference finals with that in mind were something like 77%. And with that sort of probability, you figure they would have made a finals as well, an NBA finals. And so Chris Paul is kind of on the outside looking in of the best players to ever play the sport to not reach a conference finals. And it makes you think, now he's gone, he's gone to Houston, and he actually might have a better chance in year one with this team. And so... Uh, it was probably the right move for him. It didn't seem like they were ever going to get there now since they'd already failed to in those other times. But it's hard to look back at that era and be angry or upset. Maybe a little disappointed if you're a Clipper fan, but this was still by far the best team you'd ever seen. It's not just that there was a 77% chance for them to achieve like the ultimate goal, though. So that there were holes that were kind of persistent all the way through, especially through this era, in, in eras past. I mean, they've needed a small forward since, uh, like, what, Jamario Moon or, like, uh, Eric Gordon was playing that for them, like in the Vinny Del Negro, like, Mike Dunleavy eras. Uh, they've needed a bench forever. They have needed like depth forever. And like this year, they had a bench for, like to start the season at least, and eventually that got whittled away by injury. But the persistent problems of the roster just never got fixed. And in the same way that you would expect a team that wins fifty games every season eventually to make the conference finals, there were iterations of this team that just never happened because you would expect a team that wins fifty games every season and has glaring weaknesses eventually be able to be able to address those, and that never happened either. That's because you'd expect Doc to finally do something, and and really, I mean, this team might have been as bad as anybody in the NBA at developing guys off their bench, developing rookies and draft picks. I mean, they constantly were trading picks away um you know in some cases to not really do anything and help their team and so that was a big part of it but you're right i mean i think my friend jared dubin wrote about this that they um they had a four-man lineup that played something like almost 1500 minutes more than any other group of four in the nba over those three or four years that they were together they just never had a small forward and that was why it was always kind of a group of four and not five is that they never really did find that fifth guy, um, the different jumps they made, tried to make at people like Jeff Green and 
Um, you know, Wes Johnson. There's just so many people. 500-year-old Paul Johnson, Pierce. Yes. Lance Stevenson. I mean, you go down the line of guys that really didn't work. Uh, anybody and everybody that ever played for Doc at a previous uh you know, iteration of a, the Celtics. So it was just a, a mess that they never figured that out. And that's what makes it disappointing is that they, it was pretty easy to see how it could have worked out for them. And I mean, there were a couple of series that they blew, quite frankly, that they, they should have gotten to a conference finals, but never did. But it's still hard to be disappointed when you, I mean, they're going to walk away with a Hall of Famer or two out of this probably. Uh, and guys that really did play some of their best basketball in a Clipper uniform. And just just to really hammer on the point, and like it's points made all the time, but it's not that like they didn't have the chance at these players, like they just got unlucky with their draft picks or whatever else. And I'm not sure how much that's just luck, but like they had Joe Ingles on the roster. Joe Ingles was playing very well for the Utah Jazz over the last however long, um, and they could have just had him. They just released him, and it's like that's the kind of thing that happened over and over again for these exact specific needs that the roster had. Okay. Well, let's flip this around and talk about it from uh, the other viewpoint, the Detroit Pistons, who gave up a lot in terms of players and especially draft picks uh, to get Blake Griffin. Uh, was it worth it? What needs to happen in order to make this trade be worth it now that they have this sort of big three light with Griffin, Andre Drummond, and I guess Reggie Jackson is, is the third part of that? Well, guess what? We just got done talking about a team that had zero depth. Guess what the Pistons are about to be? Um, you give up as much as they gave up in this trade, which is a weird trade, as weird as I can remember from the standpoint of a team giving up what on paper seems like totally fair return for someone like Blake Griffin. I mean, Blake Griffin, um, at most two or three years ago, was probably in a conversation to be a top 10 player in the league, maybe higher than that. Uh, probably doesn't get that kind of command in that respect now but it's still probably no worse than top 20, 25 at worst. Um, and the irony here is that because of the injuries that he's had and because of the fact that the Clippers have kind of just leveled out, I think that you look at that situation and you're like, man, the Clippers – I'm sorry, the, the Pistons gave up so much here to now where they really can't do much else with that roster. And the biggest reason for that is just the money. The Clippers really paid Blake Griffin – like a max star and, and gave him a five-year deal, 171 million. And at this point, him combined with Andre Drummond, these guys are going to be making almost $70 million a year combined by the time they get to the end of their contracts. And the Pistons are on the hook for that. And it's just unclear. How do you really work around that and build the roster around that when you've got that much money committed to two guys that both play not the same position, but the front court, and a team that's really kind of deficient in the backcourt. They've got some younger guys that could step up, but really, you know, depending on what happens with Reggie Jackson, who's been hurt now for five or six weeks and been out of the lineup, it's just unclear. Like, I, I would compare them to the Pelicans, but I don't even think that's a relevant comparison because Drew Holiday is a very good player. Uh, Drew Holiday has been healthy for the most part for a while now. Um, they're paying him a lot, but if you don't know what you're getting out of Reggie Jackson or whether he's going to be healthy and you don't have the money to really figure out anything else, you're relying a whole lot on young guys that really to this point have been mostly spot up shooters. And so I'm not, I'm not convinced that this is a team that can do more than maybe get the six or seven seed in a given year. They're spending way too much money on their top two guys that both play in the front court at a time where the league has gone a lot smaller. I have a, I have a problem a little bit with saying that the, the reason that they're not going to have like roster flexibility is that they're paying these two guys like a lot of money. Like, 
right now, yes, that's true. Like, functionally, if they try to do anything right now, well, it's hard because of that. But the reason they don't have roster flexibility is because they screwed up the roster. Because they've drafted poorly, because they haven't, like, made good trades and free agent signings. They've had empty, entirely empty periods, whatever. Um, so they drafted Stanley Johnson, and, like, Stanley Johnson hasn't turned into what they hoped he would be. Uh, Contavious Caldwell-Pope hasn't turned into, like, a big difference maker. He's a fine player, whatever. Henry Ellison, Luke Kennard, their number one draft picks, like, they're not drafting high, but they're also not drafting guys who are overachieving their draft slots. At the same time, in the second round, they drafted a few years back Spencer Dinwiddie, who is giving the Brooklyn Nets right now with Kenny Atkinson a lot of what this team kind of needs out of the backcourt. A few years ago, or some years ago now, they drafted Chris Middleton in the second round, who is giving the Milwaukee Bucks a lot of what they would hope for out of the backcourt in Detroit right now. Like it's kind of it's like Chris said, it's the same thing as the Clippers where they've had bites at this apple. They've had shots to kind of establish a roster where there would be flexibility around big salaries and they just haven't done it like they've just missed on these things. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it is like, yeah, take the open box special on Blake. He's already sound. He's long extension. Uh, You have him locked up for some years now. Uh, You're going to be paying Drummond a lot. Uh, but that's just locking in your core. And because Andre is so much younger than DeAndre, um, in Los Angeles, like, I think it makes a little more sense for them because, like, they have a little more time now on the back end to try to rebuild and, like, not, like, miss so badly for so long. Well, yeah, I wanted to talk about sort of the general team building philosophies here because, Chris, you, you wrote the other day when you, when you wrote about this particular trade that, you kind of agreed with our colleague Zach Lowe that it signs up the Pistons for what Zach called super mediocrity, which is this idea of being a good kind of 50-ish win team, but uh, it's impossible for the team to get better and also impossible to realistically contend for a title. Uh, is What's what's the argument against that, though, if you are the Pistons and maybe the alternative is tanking or pressing the reset button, especially if you're Stan Van Gundy and you're both the coach and the GM and maybe you're uh, getting to the end of your leash in both of those capacities that, you know, maybe you're you're it's enough to make that push to super mediocrity and see where it takes you rather than maybe go in the opposite direction and tank. No, absolutely. I mean, I think that's probably the best argument right now. If you're Stan Van Gundy, you would never say it out loud, but if you can, I mean, the NBA is about kind of surviving another day, especially in the playoffs. But even, you know, when your job is potentially on the line, especially in that circumstance, because it, at worst, you know, you figure if you're Stan, you're probably saying this gets us into the playoffs. That's obviously your hope. If you get into the playoffs right now with the way Cleveland looks, especially with the fact that LeBron, you know, the speculation that he might go west, you just fight to get there. And if you get there, anything can happen. Nobody's truly, truly dominant right now in the East. Um, and so you just hope that, you know, that this core really hits it off, that maybe you have the one of the best front courts in the league now, at least in the East. Um, you know, a guy takes a jump for you as far as one of your guards, and you hope that that's enough. You, you do well in the draft. My problem with that is that all of a sudden you don't have a pick. Uh, I had Pistons fans arguing with me in my Twitter mentions yesterday. We were going to blow this pick anyway, so why does it matter that we gave one up? Well, that's kind of the problem is that if you're not ever going to draft well, no one's signing up to go to Detroit, you know, take pay cuts to go play in Detroit with Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin. And so that's kind of the problem is that it's very, very difficult to build a great team without having guys take pay cuts to do it, without having a really good draft pick or two there to do it, without developing players and noticing which guys will develop into good players. That's where you start getting in trouble. You need 
a multitude of things to happen to go right for you in order for it to work. You can't just pay the you know the next good player that comes along because you get capped out very quickly. And I kind of think to some extent that's basically what they did here. They skipped steps by taking guys that they're hoping to develop or hoping that would be a part of their program, trading them in for Blake Griffin, and now kind of owing so much of what they have left on the table to Blake that they don't have enough to go around to bring somebody else established in. They've kind of already did that. They've basically done that now with Jackson. They did it with Griffin through the trade, and they paid Andre Drummond a a huge extension. And so that's kind of their cap for the time being. Uh, Once Jackson's off the books, maybe it's a little bit different. Maybe you can work another trade somewhere. But there's not a whole, whole lot of talent around the rest of this roster. You're going to hope at this point that Kennard and Reggie Bullock um, and, and you know, hopefully Stanley Johnson all come around and give you something meaningful to make you a top seed in the a top four seed in the East. Okay, let's leave things there for the non-injury related portion of the show uh, and move on, starting with the poor, sad fate of the New Orleans Pelicans. But first, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor. Every coach can tell you about the importance of putting together a great team and your business is no different. That's where ZipRecruiter comes in. It helps you post your job to over 100 job boards with just one click. Then they actively look for the most qualified candidates and invite them to apply. It's no wonder that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. That's why ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Right now, listeners to the lab can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash the lab. That's one word, T-H-E-L-A-B. ZipRecruiter.com slash the lab. Disaster struck the New Orleans Pelicans last week when star big man DeMarcus Cousins ruptured his left Achilles tendon going for a rebound in a game against the Rockets. Afterward, it was announced that Cousins would miss the remainder of the season, ending what had been shaping up to be maybe his best season in the pros. This does a lot to the big picture of the Pelicans' outlook. We'll talk about that in a second. But in the immediate sense, they're currently sixth in the West, have an 83% chance of making the playoffs, according to the 538 model, which, of course, does not know that Boogie is injured. And Cousins was also having a great individual season, leading the team in real plus minus and value over replacement player. Now they're kind of back to the single-star configuration that they had before they made the trade for Cousins, when the fate of the whole franchise rested on Anthony Davis's shoulders and his alone. So guys, what does this do to the Pelicans' outlook for this season? Do they just you know, have to grin and bear it, try to deal with it with Davis alone. Is that really such a bad thing? Do they go out at the trade deadline? Talk to me about this season for the Pelicans. We know who it sucks for. It sucks for Anthony Davis because that means he has to play a lot more center than he would probably prefer. And that was a huge deal uh, last year. That was one of the main reasons why they made that trade was to get him out of that role. Right. So now that there have been uh, there have been trade rumors that Nikola Mirotic might come down and play, but like he's not really a true center either, and like sliding him in would probably still leave Davis in that role. So it's it was strange that they they brought Boogie in to play this role, and like he's played a lot of minutes. Um, he's played a lot of just he's anchored the defense a lot. So he's de- actually still defended, even though he's missed like the game now. Uh, the second most shots in the league, two behind Carl Anthony Towns. And he's done it pretty well. Also. Surprisingly good. Like yeah. a, uh, average to above average, which allows Davis to roam around, be the weak side defender that just depresses the value in all the shots that he gets to. But having that anchor that just like is there under the rim, protecting the rim all the time is something that 
like Davis is either going to have to do or they're going to have to go without now. So, yeah, it affects their defense and just their offense a lot because he's also been better on the pick and roll this season than Anthony Davis. He's done it, uh, I think, like about half as much, but he's been as effective, more effective than, than Davis on that, too. I, I really don't know what to expect now. I mean, that team was very much built to be based so much around two guys. Two guys that are in the post a lot, two guys that can do a lot out of the pick and roll, and two star players, so much so to where they basically built in a starting lineup that has two and sometimes what feels like three point guards just to make sure that the ball is spread around evenly. I mean, that is a weird, weird lineup in the sense that you've got Rondo there, but you've also got Drew Holiday there. You have Etwan Moore there. Um, and I don't, I don't know really what happens now. Davis obviously plays a lot more uh, five which in some ways is a good thing. But I I also worry that just the what's going to be asked of Davis now is kind of otherworldly uh, compared to being able to split some of that responsibility. Uh, Davis gets hurt pretty frequently. He's played plenty of games this year. It's not like he's been out as much as some of the other MVP candidates or anything. But I just I don't like him having to be in that role where he has to do everything, given that this team was kind of designed to not have to do that. And it was set up in a way where you kind of wanted other guys to make sure that they were keeping everyone involved. So all of a sudden now I kind of feel like it catapults everybody else into having to do more. I definitely worry about what that means for Davis, although he can do it. Um, I just don't like the idea of a potentially run down Davis getting to the playoffs. Um, You know, I think this team can and should still make the playoffs anyway. I like certain elements of it, but I don't like the idea of, um, you know, them having to do it this way. And, uh, I think what it'll probably do, and I think we'll probably get to this in a second, I think it'll mean that we see the status quo from this team next year. I think they had been doing well enough under Gentry to where, in a weird way, Cousins getting hurt and then being on the trajectory they were when he got hurt maybe keeps Gentry's job safe regardless of whether they make the playoffs or not. And I also think that it probably will do a lot for kind of the market for Boogie as it relates to what it means for his free agency. Uh, And I think it probably improves the odds of New Orleans being able to keep him as opposed to him just kind of checking out what else is on the market because similar to what we were just saying about Detroit who's going to go there um, and take big money to go there it's also a team that has a a pretty tight cap already because of the money they're paying Drew and and Anthony Davis well it's worth noting that with Cousins and Davis on the floor together over the past two years the Pelicans had a plus five point differential per 100 possessions according to NBA Wowie Uh, and if you had to choose one or the other you kind of would choose Davis because over that same span New Orleans was plus 0.7 points per 100 with Davis and no Cousins and they were minus 4.6 per 100 with Cousins and no Davis so if that's a silver lining I don't don't know if it is or not in in the wake of that, but it does seem like uh, Davis is was still a more integral part to the team than than Cousins. Well, I mean, but it just changes the entire fabric of the conversation, though, because I mean, yeah, there's no question that Davis can fill up the box score. He can do like pretty much everything on the court that you want him to do. But I don't think it's just uh, about him wearing down. And like that's obviously like Chris is saying a big big question with that. But like we've seen with the Westbrook team, we've seen with the the Giannis team this season, we've seen with. All the teams, like in basically in the last 20 years in the NBA, of one guy doing it all is fun to watch from the box score night to night. It's just fun to watch a guy maxing out, but it's an entirely different proposition over, like, is this going to be uh, the kind of thing we can build a contender around? And that's what we were, like, kind of beginning to find out with can these two gel into something that, you know, can work in today's NBA? And, like, like Chris said, there were lineups where there were essentially three point cards out there. 
But while those lineups were out there, sometimes the two big men would just run their own pick and roll. Like a 5-4 <laughs> pick and roll would happen on those things. And everybody else can shoot except for maybe Rondo. <laughs> yeah. And like Rondo's not a bad spot-up shooter from like the elbow. Like that's like been his shot for a long time. And so, yeah, like th- this was something that like we were finding out um, if like there are legs to it. And just we're not going to find anything else out, out about that this year, which is you know, kind of a shame. It sucks. I mean, really, this was the one team I was kind of excited about to make a playoff run. The way they were playing lately, they looked like they could maybe contest for, you know, five seed. Maybe if something crazy happens, get in the top four there in the West. Um, and it's just a team that's built so differently fundamentally than everybody else to where they could make a team nervous. It's a team that even if you're more talented than they are, you probably still don't necessarily want to have to play them. I like matchups like those. Uh, I think it, it would have been so much fun to see Boogie make his first playoff appearance. I think that's what sucks about it the most. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about maybe one of the most accomplished players ever to not make the playoffs, and we would have seen that for the first time, which you know would have maybe lit more of a fire under him. He was having a great season, so that's why it's unfortunate. But um, you know, we we just don't. What makes the team so interesting? All of a sudden, Davis by himself does not make them interesting. We've seen him in the playoffs. Um, you know, you can basically play a box and one to some extent if one guy is going to tear you down the way he will. But that's a tough team to defend if you've got the two of them out there with shooters. Now, also, you know, we talked about this a little with the Clippers and and the Pistons and and what they're trying to do with Griffin. Are the Pelicans kind of a cautionary tale, too, about teams trying to build a contender through just sheer star power of its core two players? I mean, it seemed like such a coup when New Orleans went out and got Cousins and was able to pair him with Davis. But you know, now all bets are off on whether that duo will ever fulfill the potential that we're all so excited about. And even, I mean, they were playing at a 46-win pace even when they had both of those guys healthy. So it wasn't like they were you know, becoming this terror that, that we thought they might become as well. So it just seems like it takes more than two superstars to make a team in today's NBA. And maybe that's obvious. You know, it's the era of big threes. But you do have teams that, you know, on paper you would think, oh, these two big men playing together, the potential is limitless. And then when you see what actually happens and then factor in the injury potential, it doesn't seem to be as uh, threatening as maybe we had had thought that it could be at the time. I mean, I would I would go further and say that it's not even the era of the big three, like obviously it is. It's the era of the deep team where not only your top three players are, you know, playing at a star level of like whatever cutoff you want to call it, but then you have... The, your five, six, seven, and eight, like going into your third man off the bench, are all guys who could start on other teams. Are all guys who can you know contribute in meaningful ways. Dwayne Wade is playing backup point guard for a team that we don't actually think is that good. Um, like Clint Capella is like what the fourth best player. He might actually be the third, but whatever. But like, <laughs> but they, there are contributors up and down the Rockets that aren't just their big three, if you even want to call them big three. Uh, and the Warriors obviously are the the prime example of like. One through seven, one through eight, one through ten on that team, um, for the entire time they've been like on this run, have been players that like would be getting much bigger minutes um, on any other team. So for the Pelicans, like two players isn't enough, but I'm not sure three would be either. Like there, there's a lot of work to do to get to the level of like the very best teams, and so like I'm not sure expectations should be as high for for these teams either. They're, they're fun to think about if like they get everything together, but. But yeah, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, We mentioned earlier that the Pels were plus five points per 100 possessions when both Davis and Cousins were on the court. That means they were minus 2.8 in every other configuration in which, uh, you know, either one or the other is on the court or neither is on the court. That's 
like a bad team, you know, you, you get to the level like a plus five team, that's the Celtics this year. That's pretty good, uh, but that's only in that very specific situation where you have the two. And then, you know, if you don't build the role players around it, when any other configuration happens, you're just bad. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the real thing that was holding this team back, they're still, I won't say they were finding themselves. I think they had kind of figured out kind of where they can both excel. I mean, they're both taking a decent number of threes. Boogie in particular was taking a lot of threes this year, up around six or seven a game. But they were finding kind of where they operate from, where they like to operate from when both are on the court together. Um, they, they, Like Kyle said, they ran pick and rolls. The problem for this team as far as what kind of separated them from real contenders in the West in particular is their defense just wasn't good enough. I mean, they were still close to a bottom five defense in the league. And I think that that is kind of their next step is figuring out can we really defend with this group of five guys that we're going to build around? Um, you know, is there somebody else we can go out and get? They had Tony Allen on that roster, but hasn't been able to play a lot because of his injuries. Um, but that's their real question is how, how can they be, have more resistance on the defensive end? And if they could do that with the kind of offense they're playing, I think they're the top 10 in offense. If they could really bring it defensively and, you know, get Boogie back healthy a year from now, whenever it is, I, I mean, it's an it's still a very interesting team. Still young enough with a lot of those guys to really make something happen. But I kind of feel like a domino might have to fall in the West to give them a real shot. You know, the Warriors probably have to lose a guy somehow, and you know they still seem a little bit far away. But they were interesting, and I think they were a nice story given the fact that Boogie hadn't made a, a playoff before. Um, you know, behavior wise, he kind of seemed to to come around just a little bit. For all the talk of the refs and kind of the battles between the players and the refs, you weren't hearing him be talked about as much with regards to that. Um, it, it just felt like they had turned a corner. They're playing very well when he got hurt, and then the guy gets injured going after his own rebound. If he just makes that free throw, you know, maybe this doesn't happen. Yeah, um, and you mentioned the the open question now of how good Boogie's going to be when he comes back and how long that'll take. Uh, just wanted to note, ESPN's Kevin Pelton researched Achilles injuries recently, and he found that on average, players coming back from that particular injury uh, see their production decline by about 8% compared to what you would expect based on just if they had stayed healthy. So that it, it does seem like it'll take a while, and he might be diminished for a little bit even when he does come back. But uh, on that depressing note, uh, let's wrap things up with the Pelicans there and close out the episode by quickly hitting a few of the injury headlines that we just didn't have time to get to at the top of the show because this week was so crazy. But first, let's hear a quick message from another one of our sponsors. Buying tickets to sports and concerts can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy using SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event. Whether you're searching for a last-minute deal, planning a night out, or just need the perfect gift, SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices, fully guaranteed. There's nothing quite like seeing your favorite team or musician in person, and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value. SeatGeek is designed to make your ticket-buying experience easier than ever. It saves you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare prices and find amazing deals. And to get you the most bang for your buck, SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value to help you immediately identify the best seats that fit your budget. Plus, every purchase is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence. Make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket, from sports and concerts to comedy and theater. Best of all, listeners to The Lab get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter the promo code LAB, L-A-B, today. 
That's the promo code LAB for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase. Normally, this would be the time of the show where we bring you a number from around the league that might be a trend or might just be noise. But this week, we are putting small sample size on the bench because there are just too darn many injuries to break down. Let's start with a couple teams that we have recently discussed on the program, each of whom had terrible injury news on Tuesday. First, the Cleveland Cavaliers, who learned that all-star big man Kevin Love would be sidelined for six to eight weeks after fracturing his hand in the first quarter of the Cavs' loss to the Pistons. It was yet another blow for a Cavs team that has already lost 12 of its last 18 games. We talked about all the drama that it was going through off the court last week, and now they're they're in even worse straits than before. Do they have to go out and get someone on the trade market? What, what do they do in the wake of this injury, this latest setback? I, I don't know what they do, really. I mean, it, it kind of becomes a question. I don't know that Kevin Love's injury fundamentally changes what you're going for. I mean, it's, it's weird to think about it this way. Record-wise, they're still fine. In the East, I mean, they are in a little bit of a risk here and potentially falling much further down in the standings, I guess, if something were bad were really to happen. Let's say LeBron gets hurt, which we never talk about that possibility because it never happens. If he were to miss two weeks, this team could kind of really slide all of a sudden uh, in addition to that sort of injury that Love has. Isaiah Thomas isn't really ready to take on more shoulder, more of the load, just given the way he's played. He hasn't played well enough to really suggest that that's something he's ready to do. And so if something more were to happen, I think maybe you think about that. But really, I mean, they're going to make the playoffs, assuming that they play decently. I mean, they haven't played that way lately, but they'll get back to playing decently at some point as long as LeBron is there, you would think. Um, so really what they should be doing is just whatever they're going to do at the trade deadline anyway. You probably need to go out and get another point guard somehow, just in case Isaiah Thomas never gets back to anywhere near what he was doing last year. Um, and I feel like you might need somebody who's more versatile that can play defensively on along your back line. So you might have wanted that anyway, even before Kevin Love was hurt. I don't know what it's going to take for them to get that sort of player. Uh, we've heard about George Hill. Um, you hear about the DeAndre Jordan stuff, and you've heard the idea that they would be willing to part with Tristan Thompson to make something bigger happen. They still have that first-round pick as well from the Nets. I don't know what they're willing to move to get something, and I don't know how much sense it makes to move certain things if you're not totally sure that LeBron is coming back. So that's the interesting thing here. But I'm I'm not sure Kevin Love's injury alone would prompt me into action. I think they probably were looking at a lot of this stuff already and probably will continue to. Yeah, one of the things that makes it even tougher is that one of the trade pieces that gets talked about is Channing Fry, And now you might actually need Channing Fry to fill minutes uh, instead of being able to trade him away. I mean, I'm not sure that Kevin Love uh, being out for any set amount of time, unless you think he's just not going to be back to the playoffs, and that's not the time scale we're talking about right now, uh, like, really changes anything. Like like Chris was saying, uh, like, this just gives them time to, like, they might lose a few more games. They're going to lose a few more games uh, because of this. But it gives them time to see what they have with Isaiah, to see what they have with Isaiah and Crowder together. Like, actually, uh, Isaiah has been, you know, just god-awful no matter, you know, what he's been doing, but while Kevin Love's off the court, um, his pick and roll numbers uh, go up by about ten or eleven points per hundred possessions. Uh, he plays more time with Crowder because you know obviously Crowder and Love are you know inhabiting similar parts of the floor um, and just a little more familiar. So it might be end up being you know have some positives to go along with it. Um, if Kevin Love misses any significant time, like both uh, at the end of the season, if they're jockeying for let's say they slide into fifth, and they need home court advantage. 
um, or you know they're trying to you know get back into third or whatever else, uh, or if he does miss some time in the playoffs, like that's a much bigger deal. Uh, like we when we talk about the the LeBron offense that gets run there, and that's you know kind of elbowing out uh, Isaiah. Uh, Kevin Love is a massive part of that, and even though like there's been a bunch of acrimony on the team, and you know, you know people subtweeting each other and you know talking about each other in the press, whatever else, um, having weird meetings with um, you know kind of apocryphal uh, intent. Uh, when Kevin Love's on the court, uh, LeBron James is generating 102 points per 100 possession, like as a pick and roll ball handler. When he's off, LeBron's down to about 95, 96. Uh, that is the difference between having one of the best offenses in the league as a half court offense, which is just simply not done. That number for LeBron in the first end, like when Love's on the floor, is usually a team's like whole number, which includes transition points, which includes just like much easier All possessions. All the easy buckets. Uh, and like having that as a half court offense is ridiculous. And Kevin Love is just vital to that. He just has been since he arrived. And even though it's still not a perfect fit, it fits well enough that like he's one of the things that makes that thing go. So yeah, like it it kind of just depends on like how long he's going to be out and if we actually believe it's the six to eight weeks or whatever it is. Yeah, I mean it's 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 something where all of a sudden you're asking LeBron to do even more, and this is where all of a sudden the Kyrie trade really comes back to kind of bite you in the ass. A trade that I thought Cleveland did pretty well with at the time, but Isaiah's still not there yet. And so you have no choice but at this point to just kind of wait for him to try to get closer to what he was. Kevin Love had been having a pretty good season, especially on offense. Uh, he's gotten very comfortable in that secondary role. He can spot up shoot. He can post up. Um, you know, he can be a trailer in transition. He, he can do a lot of things. All of a sudden, he's not there. And like Kyle said, a pick-and-roll partner for LeBron, him not being there as a pick-and-pop option, hurts their offense. And this is a half-court offense that is already, in my opinion, not that great outside of what LeBron can do. I looked up this morning just randomly. They have the worst free-throw rate in the league. Cleveland, team that has LeBron James on it, gets to the line less than any other team for how often they shoot. And so th- this is just a team that like, when you start taking away points here and there, obviously Kevin Love is a big chunk of what they do on offense. And you factor in that they don't really get to the line. You factor in that when Kevin Love's not there, that LeBron's pick and rolls aren't as effective. All of a sudden, like you can't really take too many more points away from a team that defends this bad already. And so defends this poorly already. And so that's kind of where I'm at now is that this, this could be a really tough couple weeks for them. Maybe they kind of rally. Maybe LeBron says enough is enough and, you know, puts on the sort of game five performance, game six performance we saw in Boston uh, regularly. But I I think more likely what happens is that they continue to struggle, maybe struggle even a little bit more than what we have been used to the last few weeks. Um, But, I mean, like I said, I I don't think this can really change anything about the grand scheme of their plan. You're you're not going to go out and trade for something way bigger now because of what's happened you just have to hope kevin love comes back healthy and you know fortunately for them this happened early enough in the season to where you should be able to get him back and up to full speed by the time that you're really getting into the playoffs uh, let's move on to talk about another eastern conference team that has injury troubles of their own this week uh, before tuesday night's game the wizards announced that point guard john wall will undergo surgery on his left knee and it could have him out for two months uh, we spoke a couple episodes ago uh, about the wizards with candace buckner of the washington post and 
and she kind of framed this season in general as an underachieving season for the Wizards with maybe the hope that they would begin to pick up things in the second half and start to play to their talent instead of, uh, you know, chugging along against sub-500 teams and, and not winning those games. But now... What what is the outlook for the Wizards uh, change to without John Wall? Uh, they had a seventy six percent chance of making the playoffs according to the five thirty eight model beforehand, but now I don't know if it's even guaranteed that they'll make it at this point without Wall. Uh, the team has been six point six points per one hundred possessions better with Wall than without this season, and it seems like there's kind of a motley crew of people that would uh, fill in Tim Frazier, Jody Meeks, and and so forth. I there's the you know the the non number side of me that likes this. Not likes John Wall getting hurt, obviously, but likes the fact that other guys get a chance to step up. We've seen a little bit of that this year with Beal, and I think it's actually part of the reason that Beal is going to make the All-Star game or has made the All-Star game is the idea that having the ball in his hands, it kind of forces guys to develop a little bit more quickly. It throws them in situations they otherwise wouldn't get a chance to be in, and I think that's true of Frazier and Jody Meeks and what have you. So that part of it I guess I like, but you know the – realist in me basically looks at it and says these guys aren't good enough to get it done and also that the Wizards don't really have enough cushion to get into the playoffs and like the Cavs do for instance and look at them and say ah they'll be fine as long as they get there it doesn't really matter where they're seated Candace told us a couple weeks ago it very much matters for the Wizards this is not a strong enough team a strong-minded enough team to be a bottom seed and and really win a round or two anyway the Cavs can do that They've shown that they can do that sort of thing and not really care about home court advantage. For the Wizards, it's, it's important for the same reason I think that you know the All-Star game and making the All-Star game is important for those guys. They have big egos, um, and I think that a lot of that stuff kind of gets deflated a little bit when you're playing on the road, when you can get rattled a little bit more easily, especially if you're playing a team like Boston and the first round who's going to lock you up defensively. It's just a rough time for that injury, and it makes me wonder. Um, I dealt with this when I covered Carmelo a little bit in New York that he pushed through a knee injury just so that he could basically play in the All-Star game. And then right after the All-Star game basically announced, I'm not playing the second half. And John Wall, you know, is very, very big on stuff like this. Uh, And I think a lot of people around him will tell you very big on stuff like this, wants to play in the All-Star game very badly, basically was named to it. I think might have played one game after that. And, you know, had already been dealing with knee issues and stuff and getting second opinions and then all of a sudden said, I, I can't do it. And and so that that part's unfortunate is that, you know, maybe if this was something that they could have handled earlier, maybe you get him back earlier. Um, he's been playing through a lot of injuries this season. So I, I don't like this team as a seven or an eight seed. They can win from there, but I don't like their chances of doing it. Um, and I don't think the guys that, even though I think it's a good thing that these guys will get a chance to step up in his absence, I don't see it as likely that they'll do well that way outside of maybe Beal and Otto Porter. I mean, uh, this is going to sound dismissive, but I just don't think it matters that much. Um, so like, obviously John Wall matters like terribly importantly to the, to the Wizards, but like the Wizards, like I was talking to a friend of ours from ESPN and like, they were just like, well, sum up in one, uh, sentence or whatever, like, uh, what's wrong with the Wizards or like what, what their badness or whatever. And it's just, they're not good enough. Uh, they're not good enough to win the way that they were trying to win with or without Wall. Wall this season has not been good enough to be the anchor of that team in the way it's been built around him. And the players now, like that, are, they're left without Wall for some period of time. 
Um, they just don't appear to be good enough to to go on a kind of run without him. And so they're this team that like was counting on a bunch of development from their young players, Ubre and Porter, from Beal still. Beal has played better in you know the the bigger role he's had. Where Walls already missed a bunch of games this season, um, but not to the point where they're like really legitimately threatening to the other teams in the in the conference, let alone in the Western Conference. And so. They're a team that kind of exists in their their own little bubble of like as a Washington team, as a Washington Wizards team. Yeah, this is like horribly disappointing. It matters to the team. It matters like greatly. But as far as the the context, the complexion of the conference, I just I just don't think it does. Yeah, and it also puts a little extra perspective on uh, something Candace talked about, which was the team struggles against the bottom feeders in the league. They probably wish that they could have some of those wins back if they end up, you know, falling into a low seat or even uh, missing the playoffs by just a few games. Uh, finally, I wanted to highlight a bit of injury news that I think may have slipped under people's radar over the last week, just because of all the other big names and stars that went down. But on Saturday, Oklahoma City Thunder swingman Andre Robertson ruptured his left patellar tendon, ending his season. Uh, and you might think, oh, at a glance, this isn't very significant. Robertson was only averaging five points per game. Who cares? But Robertson's impact extended far beyond just his basic counting stats. The team was more than 11 points per 100 possessions better with Robertson on the court than without, uh, according to Basketball Reference. And he's been the league's top defensive shooting guard, according to Real Plus Minus, two seasons in a row, including this season. Um, Kyle, when we put this injury uh, into Slack and we're kind of discussing it, you called it secretly devastating. What did you mean by that? I mean, he's the reason that they can play defense the way they have been, and the offense has obviously been like a big problem this year. Everyone's still wondering when they're going to figure it out. And the the defense is 13 points better when he's on the floor than when he's off. Like, that is an absurd number for, for anyone, especially a shooting guard or whatever you want to call him. He actually, like, used to play power forward, and uh, you rarely see the power forward moving a shooting guard. Um, not that he shoots very well. Um, so, like, it's devastating for, from the team as it's currently playing. Uh, but I was digging around and also, and like I think I'm going to write about this this week, he also uh, is secretly devastating to the offense. And his offensive on-off isn't that big. I think they play about two points worse when he's on the floor compared to when he's off, which, you know, he's having a negative effect on the offense overall. But if you look at how he's affecting individual players, it's preposterous. So on drives, driving to the hoop on chances created off that. Paul George, who, you know, plays a similar uh, position as Robertson, who's, you know, guarded by similar players, is generating 77 points per 100 possessions uh, when he's driving to the ho- uh, driving to the rim while Robertson's on the floor. Uh, that goes up to 94, almost 95 when Robertson is off. Um, and like, so I looked at these plays, and a lot of times Robertson isn't even on the same side of the floor. So well, how is that working? Well, because the big man under the rim, his defender, he can't actually pull him away because his defender just wanders away and just walks up to Paul George, and there's two players on Paul George. So who's guarding the big man? Well, Andre Robertson's guy can just walk over to the big man or the basket. Why? Because no one has to look at Andre. And so, like, this is the way that it infects the entire team. So just on shots in general, Westbrook has a 44 effective field goal percentage with Robertson on the floor, and that goes up to 51 when he's off. Uh, like, and everyone else, like no one else has like quite that big of a jump, but everyone else goes up about three to four, uh, percentage points of effective field goal percentage up when Robertson's off on the pick and roll. When uh, Robertson is on the floor, Russ is at 90 points per hundred possessions, which is pretty good, not great. And George is at 72 points per hundred possessions, which is bad. And Mello actually is at 95. Um, when they're the pick and roll ball handler while Robertson is on the floor, while those big three are, you know, doing the thing. 
When Robertson's off the floor, Russ goes up to 98 points per 100 possessions, which is very good. George gets back to 88 points per 100 possessions on the pick and roll, which is very good, good enough to, to be running it. And Melo, in like only 85 plays or whatever, is at like 110, which is absurd. And so, like, just the basic spacing issues of the team are such that, like, Robertson is basically the anti-Steph Curry, where when Steph Curry's on the floor, everyone's shooting numbers go up, everyone's uh, just kind of contributions go up, even if he's nowhere near the play, just because of the gravity of Steph Curry and just the anti-gravity <laughs> of Andre Robertson just shoving his defender into the face of the rest of the team. Like, even though that's not borne out, like, all the way um, in, like, the the the, the raw on-off of the entire in, in aggregate, uh, looking at the specific components of the offense are like these are things that can like can be impressed upon more like because Andre plays a lot of minutes and like you're not practicing these things all the time but if they become like more core to what the team is doing uh, with Andre gone like I mean you hate to say like a player goes out and it's going to make the team better because like no you we want the players in there but but yeah like this has the potential to maybe wake up the Oklahoma City offense in a way that. Like, God, it needs to. I like that metric, anti-gravity. They should come out with that for everyone in the league. Okay, let's uh, let's leave things there and wrap up the show. Sadly, so much happened that we didn't even get a chance to talk about, oh, I don't know, James Harden's 60-point triple-double on Tuesday night, or maybe the fact that the Warriors had their lowest ELO rating in 441 days. It was a crazy week for NBA news, uh, and so uh, I'm sure we'll have some overflow to talk about next week. Oh, and uh, one last thing before we go. We're going to be releasing next week's episode a little bit later than usual because of the trade deadline. We'll be taping Thursday afternoon and releasing the episode later that night. As always, for all the listeners out there, keep sending us your questions and comments at podcast at 538.com. Got to give credit to our podcast producers, as always, Tony Chow and Katie Ferguson and our podcast commissioner, Chad Matlin. Uh, Whatever your favorite podcasting app is, we are also there, whether it's the Listen tab of the ESPN app or on Apple Podcasts, where you can subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. Wherever you listen, be sure to review and rate the show. It helps others discover the program. For Chris and Kyle, I'm Neil. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.